Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about mountains and the Islam of the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands. We're going to be exploring in the background the interplay between religion and geography, whether physical geography, political geography or social geography. And we'll be doing so through a case study of the mountain regions that form the borderlands between Afghanistan and British India and after 1947 between Afghanistan and Pakistan. In recent years, this is a region that entered the headlines through its association with the so-called Pakistani Taliban and their influence over the region of Swat, which forms one of the regions of these borderlands we'll be looking at over the next hour. But this was only the latest in a series of religious movements to emerge from a region whose innate social structures and enforced political autonomy and separation from the states of Afghanistan, British India and subsequently Pakistan fostered a distinct trajectory of religious development. We'll be beginning with the formation of this tribal borderland through the cartographic boundary marking of the colonial Great Game in the middle of the 19th century. And then we'll trace the interplay of religion and geography from the mid-19th century right down to the present day as British rule was replaced by the state of Pakistan from 1947 onwards. As we take that story right up to very recent times, along the way we'll follow the transformation of this borderland Islam as traditional Sufi leaders from the region lost influence to religious reformists associated with the Deoband movement of the lowlands. And that religious movement of reform, the Deobandis and their own madrasas and their own leaderships, were in turn forced to adapt to what had become local religious as well as political modes of self-rule in this borderland region. Helping me understand this interplay between religion and geography in the high mountain borders of the Afpak borderlands will be Sana Haroon. Dr. Haroon is an Associate Professor of History and Asian Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and she is the author of Frontier of Faith, Islam in the Indo-Afghan Borderland, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2007. Hello, Sana. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about the interplay between religion and geographical environment. And we're in particular going to be talking about the, the, the region that nowadays we think of as the, the Afghan-Pakistani borderlands. But that region has a much older history and, uh, as we'll see, a very interesting religious history over the last couple of centuries. And in thinking about how religions and their geographical environments come together. There's an old cliche about Islam, isn't there? That Islam is the religion of the desert. But of course, in reality, Islam and Muslims have flourished in many geographical environments, urban and rural, from the green pastures of the steppes that stretch from Bulgaria across to Siberia, to the high mountains that separate what's today India and Pakistan from China and Afghanistan. And we'll be focusing not on those deserts of cliché, but on these lesser known mountain environments. And as I've already said, we'll be looking particularly about the, the, the uh, Indo-Afghan and what's today the Afghan-Pakistani borderlands. And we really would really be sort of really thinking about this idea of a, of a borderlands as well, perhaps in, in multiple levels of what that might mean. Because this is also an unusual political as well as an unusual geographical environment, as you'll be explaining to us. It's, again, it's sort of a, a cliche or, of Islam is that, 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 that politically Islamic environments are organised hierarchically, whether through a, a hierarchical caliphate or, or, or some other hierarchical form of religious or indeed political authority. But again, we're going to see how that's very different in this 
autonomous and and a region of, of, of multiple, in many ways, kind of competing religious authorities. I'll be thinking, too, about how religious authorities interplay with different political authorities, whether the, the British colonial state or the Islamic Republic of Pakistan that evolved after the, the foundation of Pakistan in 1947. But before we, we get into the, uh, the weeds or whatever the appropriate botanical equivalent for a mountain environment is, let me start off by asking you what, what we mean when we speak of the, the Indo-Afghan, or in today's terms, the, the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands. So the place we're talking about is the territory that lies to the east of the modern Afghan eastern border. This territory... Uh, served as the frontier of the British Empire in India. And it's about 900 miles long and in many places, in some places about 400 miles deep. Um, this borderland territory uh, took on particular significance and took on a shape through the British efforts to demarcate it cartographically uh, as an area of containment of any kind of political or military threat from the West and from the North. And it took on shape as British administrators surveyed this territory to try and understand the people that lived there. The surveys took a form of sort of ethnographic inquiry. And British administrators, as they explored this region and uh, set out its limits, began to describe the people of this territory as being tribal. They were clearly Pashtun. They were of the ethnic group Pashtun that extended well into Afghanistan and even extended into British administered territories. But beyond being just Pashtun, the British observed and felt that the people of this region organized as tribal clan units and settled in that manner and governed themselves in that manner. And so as the British went through this process of demarcation um, and, uh, and um, sort of social discovery. They made the decision to segregate this territory from the rest of British India. And they put an administrative apparatus and even some military apparatus in place to contain the people of this territory and to keep them outside of systems of governance, that means systems of tax collection and policing, but it also means systems of uh, um, development, systems of uh, governance and dispute resolution. Uh, and so the borderland territories that we're talking about took on shape as an autonomous part of the British Indian Empire. Well, that's so interesting because this is taking place in the, in, in the context of of not just in the context, really, very much as a, as, a, as a part, isn't it, of what's often called the Great Game, this sort of a imperial rivalry between the expanding Russian, then Tsarist Empire across Central Asia, heading towards Afghanistan, or what will become then, have the borders of Afghanistan also uh, determined through the, 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 the same process, isn't it? the same inter-imperial competition. And, the, and in the wake of the, the first Anglo-Afghan war, isn't it, either side of 1840, and this is the period... That, that you're describing is, I guess, the second half of, 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 of the, the 19th century. Perhaps you can flesh out for us more what, what, we, uh, what we mean here by, by autonomy and what, how that relates to digital, let's say, the peoples on the ground and indeed even, let's say, the ground itself. Absolutely. Um, so the, this process was inspired by the great game and um, this Anglo-Russian rivalry that was playing out in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and then... Um, British relations with the new Afghan kingdoms that emerged after 1940. But the process of demarcation of this autonomous region really began in the 1870s and concluded perhaps in the 19, early 1900s, at the same time as the British were also consolidating control in the province of Punjab and various other forms of political change were taking place in India. What this autonomy meant for the people in it on the ground in this territory um, was uh, um, that they began to experience greater isolation from their 
those people whom they were connected to on the Afghan side of the border. So they became more disconnected from the Afghan cities, from Kabul and Jalalabad. They became cut off from plans that they were directly connected through to through lineage, which lay now on the Afghan side of the border. And they became more disconnected from communities and from possibilities and opportunities that lay in the Indian cities to the east. And those included Peshawar, but also smaller cities like Bandu and down uh, in the Baloch regions of Quetta. Uh, so the geographic autonomy that was created by British administrative processes was also the gradual experience of increasing political isolation and um, perhaps certain forms of also social isolation of the communities in this region. Okay, well, that's interesting. Let's, let's delve a little bit more then into who these communities were. We've, we've mentioned then the word Pashtun a few times then, and perhaps you could sort of explain to us then a little more fully then who, who were these communities, how were they how they were related to linguistically or otherwise with the uh, other Pashtuns in, in to either side of what becomes then this autonomous zone. Uh, Thanks. That's that's an um, important question. And they were closely related to the Pashtuns on either side of this autonomous zone. They had links to um, Pashtuns all over the region, uh, family links, uh, relationships of trade, um, chance meetings and encounters in the cities, friendships, and um, also a greater uh, sense of connection and imagination of connection through the idea of tribal lineage. Uh, Pashtuns all identified uh, in through um, recitation of tribal history and through recitation of myth and lore, all identified with a central um, ancestry, uh, which dated back many thousands of years. And so Pashtuns in the region that we're talking about in the borderland region saw themselves as closely related to Pashtuns who were deep in Afghanistan and deep in other parts of India. They call themselves and they related to one another as clan units. Uh, they use the term Qom to refer to their own communities and to other communities. The term qom uh, can is best understood in this context as meaning tribe or clan. And uh, they understood themselves to be subdivided into smaller communities uh, that, you know, as, as clans got bigger and sections broke away, they understood themselves to be subdivided into these smaller subsections, almost family units, really. And family units that took uh, that were that uh, took form through patterns of settlement. Uh, village communities in these territories tended to be homogenous and homogeneously uh, connected uh, as clan units. Um, there was a, an incredible consciousness about these tribal lineages and these clan lineages. And so society in this territory uh, began to um, certainly saw itself as distinct from society and community outside of these territories. The British weren't really going um, in, entirely superimposing a social identity on the people of this region in the late 1800s. Um, but it then, as, as time went by, um, the social differences and the social, particular social characteristics of people in this region became reified by the very systems of administration that the British put in place to acknowledge and uh, accommodate um, the tribalism of this region. Yeah, that, 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 that's really very, very, very fascinating to, to see this interplay then, as you said, between what we might say these emic conceptions, the, the internal conceptions of who who the, the Pashtuns thought they were or considered they themselves, indeed organized their self-conception, but actually organized their, their actual day-to-day -day lives as well, of who they could rely on, who they could turn to, who, who was closer to them, which is in a sense what the, 
the, the practical function of these genealogies and these kind of forms of, of the conception of, as you said, the, the emic idea of Ocaum and how that gets related to an idea that anthropologists in the last 30, 40 years have really, uh, you know, kind of critically reassessed the, the notion of, of a tribe. But as you said, it was the, the, the British conception of a tribe was an attempt to understand, in a sense, a social reality, but also an attempt to translate some of the, the actual terms themselves that Pashtuns uh, were using. I suppose I should clarify that when we say Pashtun, it's the word that's often the same peoples that are called Patans, the, the term that they were called by uh, Urdu or other speakers of languages from, from what we think colonial India or today India and Pakistan, or indeed for, for much of history, that the word Pashtun or Pashtun, as it's sometimes pronounced, is, is synonymous with Afghan, isn't it? That the that the, the, these were the, the Afghans as well. And still today, much of the population of Afghanistan, perhaps as much as 40% is, is, is are these Pashtuns. And, and similarly, a, 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 a large proportion of the population of northwestern Pakistan, as well as these, what are now the, 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 the heirs of the, these tribal areas then, these autonomous areas are also Pashtuns. <laughs> So there's then this sense of, of a historical identity, isn't it? That the, 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 as well as a sort of set of social relations that the, these Pashtun people of the borderlands have. There being, as you mentioned in your, in your, in, in your book, there are actually older histories that have been written since the, since the 17th century, written in, in Persian in particular, um, as well as, um, as, as time went on, as, as Pashtun... Uh, Pashto, I should say, the language Pashto, Pashto oral or eventually kind of written texts of, of history uh, as well. But how did this, this borderland with its distinctive social systems then, as, as well as distinctive political geography that you've described for us, how did this borderland foster a distinct religious culture during the period of British colonial rule then over, over this region and indeed over the, the neighbouring regions of what was then British India? There were a number of religious leaders, let's say, who were settled across this territory. Before it began to be carved out into the frontier of British India, they moved and lived um, fairly fluidly across the region, stretching from eastern Afghanistan into um, northwestern India. Uh, they based themselves in... Um, particular towns or villages. Uh, they had close relationships with the communities around them. They served those communities by um, conducting prayers at mosques, by offering advice on religious matters, interpreting sharia for local communities. And they um, took on students in the Sufi traditions of Piri Muridi, as it's called, teacher and student, or saint and follower. And they trained them for many years under their close supervision. These religious leaders who were referred to generally as mullahs by the people of the region were very influential. They were very powerful local figures. And their power and their influence took on very new significance and more profound um, sort of influence in the conditions of autonomy that were created by British frontier making. The mullahs of the region slowly found themselves to be among very few who could easily cross borders between Afghanistan and into India. They found themselves to be increasingly in control of more information and more resources than the local communities around them. And so they became, over time, more and more important to the local communities. In the local mosques, for example, in through the 1870s and 1880s, uh, the local mullahs would bring news about wars that were going on. They would bring news about new technologies that were available. And often members of their caravan would carry goods that were needed by local communities. And so they were powerful, influential and charismatic uh, presences in the area. It was around them that the Islam of the borderlands, as I understand it, coalesced. 
uh, it was through their authority that Islam was understood and filtered and through their role that Islam took on such profound, uh, profoundly different significance perhaps here than it had in other places. Islam here and Islam as a function of um, leadership uh, was more than just a personal and a private faith. It was uh, a profession and faith. It was a an access to ideas. It was um, an access to um, interpretation and theory and law. And uh, over time, as also as these the communities of this region became more um, cut off from the Kabul kingdom and from the kingdom centered at Kabul and from authority in Peshawar and other cities, uh, the people of the region had less recourse to other persons of authority who could help resolve disputes or provide advice or provide protection in times of need. And so the mullahs began to serve that function. Particularly in instances of tension and rivalry between communities, it was often just the mullahs who were able to travel between the two communities to propose resolutions to what seemed like intractable issues. One such intractable issue in 1910 or 1915 was an instance where a community that lay within the autonomous territories um, uh, stole the sheep of a Pashtun community that lived just inside British territory. The British weren't able to do anything about it. They, despite being the supreme authority in the region, the British administrators of the region could do nothing to retrieve the sheep that had been stolen and taken off deep into the borderland region. Uh, so it was a local mullah who was able to approach the community that had stolen the sheep to negotiate the return of the sheep and to return the sheep to the community that had been robbed. It was a simple function, but it was a, it was a function of mobility, and, this was, um, and it was a function of authority uh, that gave the mullahs this kind of uh, control and influence. And um, the uh, role that they played became tied into local communities' understanding of what Islam was. Another instance which really, I think, underscores how influential the mullahs were was uh, in, in the early 1900s, a the daughter of a British political agent was abducted by a local Pashtun. It was a pretty famous case, and I think there have been a few papers on it. Her name was Molly Ellis, and she was abducted and taken deep into the tribal areas to the absolute horror of British communities in India and, in fact, people in Britain, all of whom heard about this abduction in the, in the newspapers. Uh, and again, the British administrators were unable to do anything about this. They didn't have access to the communities that lived deep in the tribal areas. And so it was a local mullah who went and negotiated the release of Mali Ellis. And he did so by uh, asserting to the abductors, of course, it, this was, would be a, a very politically savvy move to actually return this young abducted girl to, uh, to India. Um, but uh, also uh, brought back a, to the British the image of a noble, upright Pathan who had not erred, who was not, was not planning to do anything um, particularly uh, horrific to this young woman, but uh, believed in and represented sort of a noble Islam and a nobility of um, the local culture. So, um, so the Islam of this region was tied up with um, the a local desire for self-representation uh, of the Pathan as being noble and upright and sincere and honorable. It was tied up with um, the disconnection of the region from other territories. And it was tied up with the need of uh, both leaders on either side of the tribal areas and 
uh, either side of the borderlands and communities within the borderlands to have an effective and um, uh, an effective means of uh, speaking to one another. And so these religious leaders presented themselves as the only ones really capable of taking on that role. Uh, and from that role, from that position of authority and influence and the ability to command the attention of leaders on either side of the borderlands and communities within the borderlands, it was from that position of influence that the mullahs of this region were able to articulate what Islam of the borderlands was. And the Islam of the borderlands that they described was two things. It was um, the principles of the most fundamental principles of Islam as they were being described by reformists in India and in uh, other parts of the Hijaz at the time. It was an Islam of five times daily prayer and fasting and observance of basic rituals. Um, it was also an Islam of mystical practice. It was an Islam which drew a lot of um, ideals from what was called the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi Sufi line. There were certain recitations that were undertaken. There were meditations that religious, um, religiously observant people did. And, uh, uh, and so in the person of the local tribal areas, Mullah, uh, a very distinct practice of Islam emerged in the borderland region. So we're getting this sense then that, that although in the, particularly the latter part of the 19th century, this, this political and, and socio-geographical separation is happening, this creation of, of, of an autonomous buffer zone, in a sense, between British India and, and Afghanistan, and, and thence beyond it, the Russian Empire is taking place. Nonetheless, there had been this, this older history of, of interconnections across the region, whether through trade, but as you've mentioned in particular, through the lineages of these Sufi leaders who were in the region then called the mullahs. And the ex example you were just giving there at the end, actually, is particularly germane then of the Naqshbandi Mujadidi brotherhood or, or, or lineage of these Sufis or mullahs in the, in the, in the tribal areas, because they originated, of course, the Naqshbandi lineage of Sufis originated in the region around Bukhara and what's now Uzbekistan, far to the northwest then of the region we're talking about. But the Mujadidi branch of it then emerges out of Sirhind and in, in the plains of Punjab to the southeast. And that gives us a sense then of what there had been of this movement. Not, of course, there were obviously always Sufis, sons of Sufis and Sufi lineages who were born locally, but nonetheless, the the Sufis, these Sufi mullahs, had been one of the means of, of interconnection with the wider world. And mentioning, as you did also, in the uh, alluding to the state of Afghanistan in this period, we, we have there from 1880 to 1901, we have the, the reign of the so-called Iron Amir, at least as the British call him, isn't it, on, on the model of the, the Iron Chancellor, Bismarck, the, trying to really carve out his own region of, in a sense, autonomy from the, the British, never achieved, of course, fully. But one of the ways in which Abdurrahman Khan is trying to assert his control over his own dominions, including tribal areas within his, his own uh, expanding sort of internal colonization, as it's sometimes being called, including by Afghan historians, I should add, is the, the attempt to, by Abdurrahman Khan, Khan, the rule of Afghanistan, to create a, a state Islam based around a Sharia in which he had his state, his own state mullahs, let's say, as well as Abdurrahman as the supreme authority therein as well. So we have, in, in, in a sense, there these a certain amount of sort of conflict, really, of, of claims to to religious authority. That the subsequent ruler of Afghanistan will have troubles as well with some of the the tribal areas, and indeed with the with the tribal tribal mullahs. <laughs> And the Iron Amir of Afghanistan, Abdurrahman Khan, he is one of, of, of various people at this period who, who is calling the, the mountainous tribal borderland Yaghistan, the, a pejorative term, really, the, not so much the land of the free, but the land of the, the wild, I guess, you know, kind of the, the wild east in his case. Um, and there were indeed a number of, of, of rebellions, particularly against the British, who were led by a number of these, uh, these mullahs. Perhaps you can tell us about one or two of those. Absolutely. So um, there were 
uh, three mullahs of particular importance in this region. They were, um, it, it, the sort of genesis of a lot of the, um, a lot of the changes that came uh, in this, in the religious practice of this region, uh, came with somebody called Abdul Hafur, who was the ruler of Swat. So very powerful, very wealthy. He was a ruler of a regional state in the middle of the 1800s. And he, um, with enormous power and influence and having uh, gathered disciples around him, uh, instructed his disciples in a particular brand of reformist Islam with attention to Naqshbandi Mujaddadi practice, with attention to the Sufi practice. But alongside um, this, uh, alongside his instruction and alongside um, the sort of explorations of ideas and, and religious um, uh, meaning that um, these mullahs were undertaking, they were also watching the world changing around them and the British were gradually encroaching in the region. And so a big part of how they gained um, uh, so much influence over the local tribes was actually leading resistance in particular moments in time against the British. And one of the real thorns in the side of the Afghan Amir was the Hadamullah Najmuddin, who was based in the Eastern Afghan region close to Jalalabad in the 1870s. Uh, so the Hadamullah Najmuddin led a uh, revolt against the Afghan Amir. And he he was a, really a thorn in the side of the Afghan Amir, so much so that uh, the uh, Amir Abdurrahman wrote to the British, um, uh, to, to the um, Governor General of India at the time and said, uh, you cannot even imagine sort of the kind of uh, um, trouble that is uh, fomented by and the kind of um, uh, resistance to my rule that is fomented by these local mullahs, and among them, the most important was the the most troublesome was the Hadi Mullah Najmuddin. Uh, the one of the disciples of the Hadi Mullah was the Haji Turangzai. So the Hadi Mullah was in Afghanistan, and he was um, his influence and his direct ability to raise a following and raise resistance to the Afghans dated to a slightly earlier, earlier period than the formation of the borderland of British India. But one of his disciples, the Haji Turangzai, was in fact um, uh, based in the region that became the borderland. And the Haji Turangzai was enigmatic, charismatic, extremely influential, um, and extremely powerful in his own right, and by the end of the nineteen hundred, by the end of the eighteen hundreds, he uh, had uh, quite a large following around him. He created a base for himself in the borderland region, and he had uh, several disciples of his own settled with him. Uh, the Haji Turangzai um, uh, base there was able to really push back against the British encroachment in the, or the British influence in the region. And he regularly called tribes to him and instructed them to not enter into deals and agreements with the British and suggested perhaps that they do better to, um, to uh, sort of resist or um, to re even sometimes directly oppose the British in any of the plans or programs that they had in the region. Uh, the Haji Turangzai's sort of mission of resistance uh, uh, was perhaps inspired by the Hadimullah, his teacher, and by Ahun Khufu, the Hadimullah's teacher before him. But he took on his own objectives in his, um, in his own sort of political journey. Uh, he traveled to Mecca in, the, in 1900, and there he met a group of Indian revolutionaries who told him about the terrible threat that the British posed, not only to uh, Indians in general, but to Islam in particular. And he brought that message back to the borderland region when he returned. And uh, for many years made it his mission to do as much as he possibly could to resist British presence in the region. Uh, so, uh, and I'm glad sort of that you brought me to this, um, to this question because uh, this, the resistance that 
the Hadi Mullah and the Haji Turangzai proposed uh, and led um, among the local communities of the borderlands became almost a part of the Islam that they professed and that they imparted to their communities as well. Uh, there was no particularly Islamic basis or um, reasoning for their resistance and for their strategies of armed uh, mobilization. Uh, but it um, perhaps simply by association became a characteristic and a feature of the Islam of this region. Mm, yeah, I think that, that that's yeah an interesting thing to point out, isn't it? Because, of course, throughout the, the colonial period, I mean, particularly by the, the 19th and 20th century, there are many very learned Muslim scholars, ulama, formal madras-educated scholars, who, of course, were finding legal reasons why not to rebel against the British and to live peacefully, etc. So, I mean, that's, I think, you know, an, an important, interesting piece, recognising the, the I don't know, kind of political flexibility, one might say. I don't know if that's the, the too pragmatic way of looking at it, of sort of, you know, Islamic political or legal reasoning. And, yes, and, and although we're talking about, let's say, what might seem here to be obscure rebellions on some tribal mountainous backwater borderland. This was, of course, world news at the time, wasn't it? The, the weather of the Abdul Ghaffur, known in English as the Archund of Swat, filling the, the newspapers in Britain and perhaps America as well, and leading Edward Lear, the famous nonsense poet, to write his famous poem that began, who or why or where or which is the uh, who, who, are, who, why, or which, or what is the Archund of Swat, isn't it, as it goes? And, and also the Archund himself is beginning to, to print books down in, in the lowlands as well, which is an important sort of sense of this engagement with the, uh, of the borderlands, with, the, with other regions, through, particularly through the, the mobility and the intellectual and religious ties of the, the various mullahs. As you've mentioned, though, they, the, the let's say the traditional or the older uh, sort of religious affiliations of, uh, of these mullahs were, were with the, the, the Sufi orders, particularly the Naqshbandi Mujadidi order. And it has to be said that, that generally speaking, the Naqshbandi Sufi order has often been seen as the, the Sufi order that is most Shariat Bandi, as one would often say in, in, in South Asia, is most most most, uh, I suppose, inclined towards Sharia, most closely associated with following the, the, the religious laws compared to perhaps some other forms of more ecstatic Sufism, etc. Um, but you've also mentioned a number of times then the, the way this Naqshbandi Sufism and these leaders were increasingly involved with the wider... Uh, the wider evolution of, of what you've called reformist Islam in, 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 in South Asia, and more broadly, as you mentioned, with visits to Mecca. And in particular, I think this seems to have meant the, the Diobandi religious theological movement, legal movement. We actually have an Akbar's chamber on, on Dioband, I'm happy to say, as a, as a global religious reform movement that emerges in, in colonial India with the foundation of the Dioband Seminary Religious School in 1866. Uh, more or less near Delhi. So again, quite away from the actual region we're dealing with here. So given there is that, in a sense, that distance and and superficially at least uh, a real, a, a, an apparent theological difference between reformist Diobandism and Sufism, perhaps you can help us bridge those geographical as well as perhaps religious differences by, by telling us how, how did the Diobandi theological movement gain an initial foothold and then increase its influence across the borderlands? So it all began with the Haji Tarangzai's visit to Mecca in 1901 for Hajj. Uh, like many Indians of the time, the Haji Tarangzai joined a caravan in the borderlands, which took him to, I believe he went to Karachi for his, to, and took a ship from Karachi, which took him into the Arabian Sea and around to Mecca, where he then performed the Hajj. And I think the entire trip took him probably a couple of years to complete. Uh, he joined a caravan of travelers to get to Karachi. He probably waited for many months to board a ship. He joined many hundreds of other pilgrims uh, on that ship. 
and they travel together to Mecca. In those days, today, Hajj is a matter of a few days. Uh, a pilgrim will fly into uh, Mecca. They will complete the Hajj and they'll leave again. They'll leave Saudi Arabia again within probably a week. At the time, because the journey was so long and arduous, Haji Turangzai probably spent many months getting to Mecca. He then spent many, many months living in Mecca. And uh, that wasn't unusual at all at the time. Um, many other Indians did the same thing. And that was where he met the Deobandis. He lived in or close to one of the Deobandis, Molana Mahmud al-Hassan, who, who was the leader of the, the head of Tarlulum Deoband, the Madrasa at the time. And at the time, Maulana Mahmoud al-Hassan was deeply uh, involved in anti-colonial politics. Uh, he wanted to organize other Indians to be involved in anti-colonial politics, and he used his time in Mecca to initiate a number of conversations with those he met, both um, people from the region who were not Indians and Indians themselves. Hajj formed this sort of unique opportunity for Indian Muslims to come together to have conversations that were otherwise not necessarily possible in India itself. Uh, the Haji Turangzai returned to the tribal areas, to his home base in the borderlands, uh, deeply inspired by this anti-colonial mission and maintained um, stayed in communication with Maulana Mahmoud al-Hassan and other Deobandis that he had met in Mecca and then went on to meet afterwards. Uh, he stayed in communication with them for many years. In 1914, Mahmoud al-Hassan, from his seat in Deoband, declared the start of um, a, an armed opposition to the British. And he instructed various of his own students to now leave India. And of course, 1914 coincides with the start of the First World War for good reason that it happened at this time, Maulana Mahmoud al-Hassan saw the British as being particularly weak in this moment. And he deviated, as, as I'm sure you notice, he deviated from the message of nonviolence that was promoted and, and preferred by many anti-colonial Indians at this time, in this moment. So taking this very particular view that the British could be compromised militarily in this moment, Maulana Mahmoud al-Hassan sent, apparently by some accounts, hundreds of his own students to the borderlands, uh, and he sent them to the, uh, to the charge of the Haji Turangzai, whom he'd met 14 years earlier. And he instructed them to base themselves in the borderlands and to prepare for a war in India and to prepare for an attack on India from the Northwest when the moment was right. It was, by some accounts, 120 men along with their families migrated to the borderlands at this moment and they set up a base which was referred to as Chamarkand in the literature. And it was described in detail by several of the Deobandis who accompanied, um, who, who went to the Haji Turangzai at this moment. Uh, the Deobandis went, they settled in the borderlands and then they stayed there for many years. The planned attack on India never happened. Mahmoud al Hassan ended up being arrested and incarcerated in Malta uh, as, a, um, as a political dissident. Uh, and many other Deobandis were incarcerated there also. Uh, and of the ones who were in the borderlands, I believe many ended up leaving and returning to India, but maybe 20 or 30 families stayed on in the borderlands at this, uh, into the 1920s and the 1930s, and they became almost like locals, and they became quite inconsequential to the uh, general uh, pattern and, and um, direction of Indian anti-colonial politics. But they had their impact in the borderlands. Um, First of all, the impact was their presence and their representation of the Obandi Islam alongside uh, Haji Turangzai. Uh, they um, accompanied the Haji Turangzai on many of his preaching missions through the areas. They participated in some of those dispute resolution jirgas that I described earlier. 
and they um, made themselves available to locals. Some of them intermarried with locals. After a time, perhaps the most important impact of the Diobandis, uh, in addition to this messaging of the Diobandi practice of Islam, the encouragement of the five times daily prayer, the encouragement of fasting, the encouragement of uh, reformed Islamic practices. Um, in addition to, to that sort of impact, um, their, their longer impact was sort of the glory of this moment, the glory of that movement for an armed insurrection and nothing more. Uh, and so that direct contact between the borderlands Islam and the Deobandis sort of filled into a little bit of nothing, but the memory remained and, and was retained. And um, um, it, it was written about repeatedly. And so the mystery and the promise of the borderlands region remained alive in the Deobandi imagination in Deoband. And uh, in subsequent years, many locals from the borderlands region went to Deoband to get an education and brought those teachings back. The Deobandi influence, I think, uh, is best understood uh, at this moment in the 1920s going up to the 1940s as being uh, almost a lineage in and of itself. It became a stamp of authority in and of itself and a credential of, for religious practice in the borderlands region, but it became almost localized. And it took on a very local sort of character. Um, the, over, the, over the years that followed the Diobandi relationship with the borderlands continued in exactly that vein. Um, people continued to travel from the borderlands to India and from India to the borderlands until 1947, when that kind of back and forth between the territories that now became a part of Pakistan and the territories that now lay decidedly in India, that became less possible. And at that moment, um, there was more of a push towards setting up local Deobandi madrasas that were modeled on the Darululum Deoband, but um, were now just based here in, in the Pashtun regions. But that became the legacy of Deoband in the region. And so what we understand as being Deobandi Islam in the borderlands is, um, is those people in the borderlands that uh, have um, taken on, uh, the, that have studied the Deoband curriculum and that most likely now teach the Deoband curriculum in the Pashtun regions. So we have then, in a sense here, this transformation of borderlands Islam through the, the interaction of, a, as you said, a relatively small number of, of, of actors, so to speak, Haji Turangzai himself, and then the, the relatively small number of some dozens of, of Deobandi uh, seminary graduates who move up to the highlands. And then that brings about the, the creation of of religious seminaries promoting, of course, literacy, which are a rarity, of course, a rarity is a social as much as a religious asset um, in, in, in the, these mountain regions, as well as promoting, of course, a, a particular view of what Islam is and indeed what Islam isn't, because of course, Deobandi Islam have been very critical of many of the popular religious practices of the, the lowlands, particularly festivals, shrine festivals and so on, and similarly, the veneration of the same saints and shrines that had for many centuries uh, been a really key feature of, of, of Pashtun religiosity in the borderlands uh, and, and beyond. And as you've mentioned then, in, in, in 1947 then, the British do leave. There is the foundation of the Republic of India, where the, the original home madrasa, so to speak, the Darul Ulum, the, the House of Knowledge of Deoband, becomes part of the territories of India. And then there's the foundation of, of, of Pakistan, which inherits its own Deobandi sub-madrasa, so to speak, as well as the, the, the borderlands themselves, or indeed this autonomous zone of which Pakistan has limited uh, political or indeed religious authority. So how did this borderland Islam you've been describing for us and its own religious authorities then relate to the new state and uh, what is ultimately then redefined over the decades as, as the Islamic Republic 
of Pakistan from 1947 onwards. So to begin with, um, in the in the most immediate aftermath of the creation of Pakistan, and this was a moment of enormous conflict in the borderland, um, because the the borderland regions connected to, um, or people from the borderland region uh, moved across to the disputed territory of Kashmir, which in that moment in 1947 had not been uh, the fate of it had not been agreed between India and Pakistan. And so a conflict, a small-scale conflict had begun in the region. Uh, and uh, various of the tribal communities from this region went across into Kashmir to fight on behalf of Pakistan in from 1947 to 1948. And so in the most immediate aftermath of the creation of Pakistan, the role of religious leaders as organizers of resistance uh, sort of carried over and almost set the tone for what was going to come in the year in the in subsequent years. Uh, the religious leaders, by many accounts, um, participated in the uprisings in Kashmir in 1947. Uh, after those were over and as attention turned back to the borderland itself, uh, the sons of Haji Tarangzai continued to resist the Pakistan state and to push for a political equation and a geographic equation which would allow the borderland region to become more closely integrated with Afghanistan. It was what was called the Pakhtunistan movement or the Pashtunistan movement. Um, and uh, and so the in, uh, the the religious leaders continued to sort of ride and and perpetuate the um, the notion of an Islam of resistance, the politics of resistance around religious leadership and around an Islamic identity. This pattern of the Islam of resistance continued, but it was not absolutely consistent, as you'll see. So in the way in which it continued. Um, you had the Pashtunistan movement in the 19, the Kashmir mobilizations in 1947, the Pashtunistan movement through the 1950s and by some accounts into the early 1960s, and um, perhaps jumping forward quite far, you see it happen again in the 2000s with in the late 90s with the rise of the uh, neo-Taliban movement in the borderland regions, once again led by religious leaders. My, my interpretation of these events is that they were opportunistic to a great extent. They were, but they were opportunistic in the same way that all of the religiously led mobilizations had always been from the 1800s. It was, this was sort of a part of the role of the tribal areas mullah to organize people around a political agenda. Uh, it was um, very much in keeping with the traditions of what mullahs did in the region. And so in that respect, it was, I do not uh, necessarily want to um, uh, undermine the motives of the, the religious sensibilities of those who were involved. I think they were profoundly committed to their faith. Um, but they were also profoundly committed to a politics of pushing back against um, centralizing and um, uh, centralizing state systems. Uh, and so in that respect, the uh, Islam of the borderlands in its relation continued to have a very tense relationship with the state of Pakistan. Um, there were uh, and it was probably it, it's probably best understood in the period um, through the after the start of the war on terror in 2001 uh, as the people of the region sort of contended with massive large-scale militarization of their territories of their homeland and also contended with an influx of many millions of newly displaced people from Afghanistan, uh, they faced kind of social friction and social change on the ground. And um, they uh, also contended with a basic 
breakdown of trust within their own communities, a lack of trust of who who people really were. Uh, there were so many refugees settled in the territories. There was an increase in crime. There was an increase in uh, in conflict. There was an obviously a drain on local resources. Uh, there was also uh, increased pressure from the Pakistan state for locals to give up uh, those who might be aiding uh, an Afghan resistance or an Afghan, um, the, the Taliban in Afghanistan or Al-Qaeda in the region. Uh, so, so this sort of mistrust was brewing and, and local communities were um, uh, dealing with their own, own local friction. And the local religious leaders uh, in that moment uh, were able to recruit quite widely across the region. Uh, they recruited disenfranchised and unemployed young men. They recruited those who were displeased with the politics, that Pakistan, the political line that Pakistan was following and who were displeased with the allied uh, attacks on Afghanistan. And they, um, they, they were able to bring together quite a strong following in that 2001 to 2009 period. And of course, it was a following and it was an organization and it was a politics that the Pakistan state did not want to see play out in along its borders. Uh, so um, 2001 to 2009 period of mobilization under the banner of religion, the 1947 period of mobilization under the banner of Islam, the 1960 moment, these are all... Um, related um, by virtue of following exactly the same pattern of local religious leaders being able to um, leverage their authority and the sort of possibilities and the hope that they hold out to local communities. That it was not the only pattern of religious practice to the region. There was continued adherence to Sufi Naqshbandi uh, Majadidi practice through this region. Uh, there were a lot of local Naqshbandi Majadidi practitioners who were not part of these mobile mullah networks. There were those who were very located, settled in their local khankas, who brought students to them and who didn't have a whole lot to say about um, politics or about arming oneself or about mobilization. Uh, there were local Nakshbandi um, Mujaddidi teachers whose primary work was teaching, uh, was writing um, talismans and making them available to local communities to um, protect people against disease or to hope for uh, better economic or financial prospects. And in addition to these two very different versions of uh, religious leadership. There were also local um, mullahs in the region, local leaders in the region who were funded by the Pakistan state. Um, in uh, maybe 1975 or 1978, uh, there was a woman from the, from the borderland region who wrote to the establishment of Peshawar saying, well, my husband was um, a local mullah in the region and he was paid by the government to um, run radio shows and to uh, encourage people's loyalty to the Pakistan state. And he honorably did his work for his entire lifetime and he's now passed away and I request that you pay me a pension to sustain me because um, uh, now I'm now destitute and we no longer have an income. But she sort of underscored this, her husband's loyalty to the state. And he was one of many uh, local religious leaders who was on allowances from the Pakistan state. So the Islam that you see in the borderlands from 1947 onwards was deeply um, perhaps colored by the resistance-oriented Islam, but it also had other facets to it. So as we wrap up our conversation and as we've come very much close to the present day, 
Perhaps we'll return to our overarching theme of the interplay of geography and religion. And let me ask you then, how does geography, if at all, continue to shape religion today in what's now the Afghan-Pakistan border region? Um, so this is actually a, a question that is almost impossible for me to answer because all of my theory comes and all of my understanding of this region comes from the administrative demarcation of the territory as an autonomous zone. And in 2018, by a constitutional amendment, the special administrative status of this borderland region was taken away. And so the territories, the borderlands, and the particular social composite that it produced and the forms of religious authority that it produced um, ceased to exist. And so what happens going forward is very much anybody's guess, um, but I suspect that it will be a very different landscape of religious practice as the people and the territories of this region become integrated under the jurisdiction of Pakistani courts and uh, under the web of policing and administrative apparatus that exists within the Pakistani state. Well, that's such an interesting point of historical containment, I suppose, that we've talked through the emergence then, the evolution, then the devolution, and then the disappearance of this borderland zone of what had been then political as well as religious autonomy. Dr. Sana Haroon, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Da 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 da